0: Hello and welcome to the HortWeek podcast. I'm HortWeek editor Matt Appleby and today I'm with veteran landscaper Alan Sargent. So welcome Alan. Good morning to you. Excellent. Well great to have you on. You've been a Week columnist for many years. You're very well known in the industry and uh, the new thing which is happening with you and what we're basing this podcast around is your new book,
1: confessions book that sounds a bit uh risqué is it ah it's confessions of a gardener for quite a few years now about 15 years at least i do a, a lot of talks for gardening clubs and societies and so on and i call it confessions of a gardener because obviously it intrigues people to come along and see what it's all about thinking about the old 1970s confessions films uh with them um, whatever his name is um no so that's part of the fun the stories are uh they're, they're, they're all genuine um, there's no, they're all redacted, no names and addresses and so on. Um, but they are, because they're a series of, of, of stories and tales. I can start, each one almost starts with a once upon a time. And i just tell the story that always funny about, about what happened with clients and so on. Uh, and so I decided, okay, every time I go to one of these meetings, they say, why don't you write a book? Well, I do a lot of writing, as you know. So I thought, okay, I'm going to put them all into one book form. And as I started doing the writing, it was quite intriguing because I thought, well, where do, where do I start? Uh, which story do I tell first? So I started from the beginning. The, I started that in 1968 in landscaping. So my, my earliest sort of recollection in the book is from 1970. And I realised it was a different world in those days. Everything was just so different. So I felt I had to explain and describe to the reader why things were different, the fact that for two years before when I started, we didn't even have a telephone, We had to rely upon the post, which is actually not a bad thing. You could post a letter one day and get a response the next. We had two posts uh, per day in those days. And it sort of realized that um, you know, trying to describe to somebody just how different the world was 50 years ago in the world of landscaping
0: really is a different world isn't it yeah no those films robin asquith but i don't see you as being a robin asquith character alan because you're a, you're a much more you're a more, you're, a more, you're a more serious character too but um but can you give it tell us some any of the funny stories can you tell us
1: give us a flavour um well sort of where do i begin one of my favourite stories I, I've, I've called the lord now, i'll just tell a little part of the story because uh, it's, it's quite a lengthy one um, some of these stories have have more than one part because i've met the same the same client uh, on different occasions. This particular one this chap was not, was not a lord in those days and um, I built a, a a series of art items in the garden, including uh, footpaths and so on and, uh, and a circular pond uh, this circular pond was in the middle of a footpath, so the footpath went between the back of the house and the swimming pool. And um, so you can imagine a, a circular pond with a, a circular seating wall on either side. So you could sit and look into the pond from two um, seats built either side of the, the footpath. And um, this is all very, very wonderful. I mean, really enjoyed doing that because he used all old reclaimed materials and so on. And the um, client was thrilled to bits. But, um, w- and so basically, having got the the, the, uh, the pond finished and 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 the pump installed i don't touch electricity so uh, i made it clear that it would have to get an electrician to to come along and uh, and get the thing working so that was fine he 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 rang me and said uh, i've got the um i've got the pump you know all ready to go now so one saturday afternoon by appointment lovely glorious sunny uh, june afternoon uh, i went along to site and um and, and got this you know to, to work on this pump to get it, what we call fire it up to make it work and set make the settings as I walked into the back garden the uh, this chap was there um with his young lady beautiful young lady uh, and they're both lying out on the lawn but they were both stark naked which is a bit of a a, a thing you know trying trying to work with a, a beautiful young lady offering you uh, uh ice cold lemonade and uh, trying did not know where to look to be honest uh, and I'm no prude at all, but uh, it was, it was, it was a really funny situation. And um, anyway, after after a, after a while, and I f- almost finished doing what I was doing, and the chap got up and walked indoors, and and came out wearing nothing but a pair of Wellington boots. And uh, he said, um, "Come with me. I want to show you something." And I thought, "Yeah, okay." So what are we going to do? So anyway, we walked out of the garden uh, across a field. Like a paddock or meadow um, next door to the garden, we walked across this field. You can imagine me walking along with this uh, naked fellow, and it, it was quite funny because I I didn't know where to to walk behind or in front or beside, and because he had long legs, I had to almost run to keep up with him. So it must have been a hilarious sight. So anyway, what he wanted, he he built a a pond, a big pond, in the in the grounds. And he wanted it all planted that with daffodils, so um, that was a project for the for the winter. So that was like one part of the story, and it is it was really really funny because uh, having gone back and uh, you know uh, left the pump working uh, a, a week or so later, I got a call and said, um, <clears throat> "Would you mind coming back to site he said, because I've got a bit of a problem?" And obviously very concerned, but knowing the chap was very happy, so I went back to site and. Um, he said, I've got a problem. He said, My girlfriend's bought me a, a, a birthday present. And it's it's a bit tricky, he said, because it I, it won't work. And I said, Well, what won't work? He said, Well, she's bought me a remote-controlled drinks trolley. So you can imagine an electric R2D2 type drinks trolley, uh, hostess trolley, and let's so wanted it to come out of the kitchen on across a ramp, up the path, and into the swimming pool. So they can actually uh, call she she could sit there and call this trolley up the path, trundling up the path, uh, and, uh, and so you know to save her getting up and going back indoors. That 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 was too funny for words. Really, when I, when I tell the story, it's difficult to try and believe it actually happened, but it did. Uh, and what happened was that the trolley she couldn't get the trolley to go past the circular pond, so she wanted me to he wanted me to take down the walls at the side, rebuild the walls about a foot further back so she could negotiate this thing around the, the pond, and which is fine. It cost a lot of money because it's not a simple job. And so, of course, there she, was, she could actually sit there and she could call this drinks trolley out from the kitchen, trundle, trundle, trundle up the footpath and, uh, and serve her at the, at the swimming pool. Well, I wasn't actually there, and I never actually saw this thing happen. But apparently, about a week later, um, he rang me up and said, thanks ever so much for doing that. He said, but... um." It shouldn't really have bothered," he said, "because the drinks trolley came out, negotiated the circular pond very nicely, and she couldn't stop it, and it went straight to the swimming pool. That was the end of the uh, the end of the electronics drink trolley. <laughs> Superb. No, I really, I remember reading that one? That was one that stuck in the memory. So, um,
0: you talk about how different it was back then. I mean, I, some of the stories in the book about you doing Chelsea uh, compared comparing then and now. So, what what were the big differences back then in Chelsea?
1: Well, it's difficult because. Um, you, you don't know at the time you don't know that my first Chelsea was in 1983 I think or 83, 84 and um, you know I didn't know any different shall we say because um, having arrived there on site I did two gardens for a chap called Peter Rogers and he's an old Chelsea stalwart and uh, one was for the Sunday Express and one was for what is now known as Bradstone and um, so that, that was fine but we didn't we didn't know it's as simple as that when we arrived on site in, in uh, 40 years ago, uh, all of the turf was still in place. Nothing had been stripped. I mean, today the whole site is all ready for the, the contractors to, when they turn up and all the sites are marked out and spray painted and so on. But 40 years ago, there was nothing marked out. You just knew so vaguely where you were going to be. You'd try and find somebody from the RHS and they'd uh, they'd sort of show you your plot. And after that, you were on your own, which, which was great because I said didn't know any different. So we threw everything I, everything I had at these gardens because we're only a small company and um, we, we worked really, really hard from day one. So we got so far ahead of ourselves um, that we, we actually sort of finished um, three or four days ahead of everybody else. So we thought this was wonderful and we sort of took this almost to be our, our trademark of always being the first guys to finish at Chelsea. And um, But I say we were literally on our own but one thing I did have the benefit of—I had the first mobile telephone installed on a motorbike. Now that sounds really silly now, but uh, it was six thousand pounds. It cost me six thousand pounds in a Motorola nine thousand, and I had this thing installed professionally onto a motorbike. We know the first one there because um, the Sunday Express came out and did a feature on an article on this this garden designer with, with a mobile phone, and it was it was it was so funny to think about it nowadays, but had the only mobile phone and site in Chelsea um so I was very very popular because everyone had to come and use my phone to to call up Travis Perkins and so on to to get their materials to site but ev- everything was much more relaxed I don't know it's, it's very different it's a whole different world we didn't have all of the um, facilities that we had that you got today we we had to bring our own barbecue our own food and so on and it was a wonderful friendly really really friendly atmosphere with them um, everybody pitching in, all helping each other. I know they do. I know we do nowadays at Chelsea, but in those days we were like a really close-knit family and everybody knew each other uh, and working with people like David Stevens and I think that was his first Chelsea as well. So it, 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 you, you mark out basically lifelong friendships from that of those early days at Chelsea. It's a lot more uh, health and safety on site now, isn't there? So is that a good thing? Well, obviously health and safety must be a good thing, but it was a... It's again very difficult because we were working them with very large stones. I mean, David, especially David Stevens, was very, very well known for his huge York stone flags. Well, they are no, two or three hundred by each. Now the health and safety rules say you can't lift anything more than twenty kilos, so that would be a nonsense trying to build those sort of gardens with, with those those sort of restrictions. Uh, and it was um, everything was was. Yeah, as though we were working on site in our own gardens, uh, you know, for clients. That was the sort of atmosphere we had on site at Chelsea. We were working in our own rules, our own way. And it wasn't until much later, probably around about, oh, I suppose about mid-90s, that health and safety started getting much, much stricter.
0: Now... Talking about health and safety, you do a lot of legal work. So um, can you give us a bit of a flavour on the sort of areas you work in there?
1: Well, for the last, I retired from construction work. I'm, I'm 76 now, and I retired from construction work when I was 73. So it wasn't that long ago. My specialty is uh, flint walls. I love working on flint walls. But for the last 30 years, I've been doing con- what they call consultancy work, which involves expert witness. And for the last five or six years, I've been doing almost sole, expert witness work around the country and um it just get such a, a huge range a huge variety of of complaints disputes and so on so basically I, i'm not an arbiter and i'm not a i don't do mediation I, I work on behalf of the court so i have to follow court's procedure and um it, it just it intrigues me and and, and baffles me why some very intelligent people um, are now thinking about doctors and and dentists who were willing to hand over 10 or 20,000 pounds in cash to a complete stranger with no contract uh, and no specification and then wonder why everything's gone wrong and that's just it it really does baffle me and I'm working really hard uh, in different areas of the industry to try and get that no, to make that get that message across to the public, please help yourselves. What sort of cases do you get then? Oh, it it, it is very interesting talking about expert witness cases. Let's sort of look at the the um, some of the sort of the scale. One particular one I've got at the moment is uh, quite an intriguing one, which is what what do you call a dead living wall? Uh, I've got a site where, uh, and I can't sort of mention where it is or anything, but. Uh, a public site that had a, a, a very, very expensive, you know, hundred thousand plus living wall built uh, that has been neglected over the years and has died over the last what, ten years. Well, it's very intriguing because it's sort of you have to try and trace back basically how the system was was um, put together, how, it was installed, how it's installed, has been maintained. So I have to go back and do all the research on on the history of this ten year old now dead living wall. And that, that's a fun one. You spend sort of half the day up in a in a, um, a, a, a facelift type uh, lorry um, doing the, the research. I get a lot of complaints about um, porcelain paving. I think porcelain paving is going to be the next the next next big issue, to be honest, because it's um, it, it can't be recycled, uh, and you know, I think it's going to become a case in a few years' time of what do we do with all this you know, porcelain paving? We can't do anything with it. So I can see there being like a, a butter mountain, but a, a porcelain paving mountain of old slabs that have been ripped up. Do you think
0: the number of disputes are rising?
1: Well, I I, I deal with about eighty a year, and uh, that that's quite a lot for you know a, a one man organ, uh, organization. But I do know there are about seven members of the PGCA who are also expert witnesses uh, around the country, everywhere from uh, well, we go all over the country, but. We're basically based from Cheshire uh, and down to Malvern and, uh, and and across the south, um, Derbyshire, um, and uh, we're, we're all very busy. So I should think probably in total we're dealing with maybe 400 cases a year.
0: Wow! And um, as well as porcelain, is there anything else which you think's on the horizon?
1: Uh, well, we certainly have a lot of problems with uh, with artificial grass, um, not because it's um, I'm not going to get involved in the in the eco-friendly um, argument, but The biggest problem we have is that the number of installations that are badly um, constructed are are causing so many problems because contractors don't, a lot of contractors do not understand artificial grass installation. They don't um, put the the foundations down properly um, so that they're free draining. They don't uh, get the the, the matting uh, secured properly so that it, it, it becomes wrapped up and so basically the whole project fails and you can't just start again it all has to be ripped up and all done properly again so I probably condemn something around about I don't know uh, 800 metres a year personally easy 800 metres That's 800 metres of of material is going to go into landfill if it had been installed, installed correctly wouldn't have gone there
0: What about growing media?
1: Growing media is another one that's sort of coming in um, to becoming a problem because there are some cases going around at the moment, which again I can't discuss, where growers are actually suing suppliers because the claims they've made for the, um, the green waste type product. Uh, so I shouldn't really have said green waste. Should we we'll say the alternatives to peat. The alternatives to peat are not proving to be uh, as um, effective as they're claimed and so wiping out whole, you know, whole batches of plants in nurseries, so there there are cases coming up from that. It's a, a new phenomena, it lasted a few months really. Is there a lot of them out there? I don't know yet, and I really don't want to get too involved in that because I can see they're becoming quite a it's gonna become quite an issue. That's a mm. that's a, a forecast rather than a statement.
0: No no, fair enough. And uh you've written quite a few books in the past. How many books have you written?
1: Uh about twelve now, I think. Twelve, wow <laughs> I started out really with the encouragement of the Hortic- the Horticultural Week because I've been writing for you for uh about twelve years now, eleven or twelve years. And um I I wrote a book called um the, the, the Head Gardener's Survival Manual, uh, which is a very obscure sort of title in a way, but I sold about fifteen hundred copies. Well that's fifteen hundred head gardeners that have, have used the book. So and that really um that that really sort of linked me in with Hall week after that because uh, Kate, the uh, pre, your your predecessor, um, liked my work, and so you know, I've been writing since then. Now what I've, I've done since then, I did then the landscaper survival manual, and I followed that with the garden designer survival manual, then the garden contractor survival manual. But they were all written for the industry, but I write too for the public. Uh, one particular book called Buying a Garden is to try and get uh, educate the public of how the correct procedure of, uh, of working to you know towards getting a garden installed, from having the first ideas to introducing a garden designer, selecting a garden contractor, right through to the end.
0: How do you go about getting them published?
1: All self-published. Um, I'm very lucky that my son-in-law runs a, a, a very good firm, very big firm of printers um, in, in Crawley. And so I'm very lucky again because I don't have to I don't have to pay out a big sum of money up front to get my books published. Um, I just simply work with their studio and um, so instead of having to spend out say thousands trying to get a book published I can do so just just for you know a, a few hundred um, so <laughs> this is partly to explain why I write so many books I suppose. What have you got lined up bookwise? Uh, the next one coming out about Christmas time, which is a, a very different one for me. This is this is called the A to Z of Paving and Associated Works. Now, I'm not trying to uh, to write the book on paving. We've got the new British Standard coming out, BS seven five three three one hundred one and one hundred two, which is due out very shortly. That is the the book for paving, but this particular book, the A to Z, is much more about um, discussing how to um, overcome all sorts of issues, including looking at hydrological surveys, planning ahead, soil sub-bases and so on. So it's going to be a proper A to Z, um, including how to maintain paving, all kinds of paving, sustainable drainage paving. Uh, it's, it's going to be it's, it's quite a, quite an effort. It's going to take me a good three months to write this one. Wow! Is there anything else you'd really like to tackle when you've you know got
0: got time? Get round to it.
1: I love working for the whole weekend, uh, and I've done uh, well over 100 um, articles for you, and that sounds a, a lot, for, you know, 12 a year. Um, and really, it's, it's always trying to come up with something different, uh, a, a new. Uh, I don't write for the sake of just trying to write a column. I, I, I try and, and, and look at a particular topic, particular subject from a different angle and to provide provide you, the reader, with um, with the insights gleaned over the last fifty years of uh, fifty three years now of, uh, of working in the industry. Oh, yeah. Is there any sort of bugbears you've
0: got anything you'd like to see in your industry being tackled legislatively?
1: Oh, I've got a huge bugbear. I really get so frustrated again when. We have, as an industry, we have so many rules and regulations, we, which is fine. We should have them. I think we should be a licensed industry. We're the, only, we're the biggest gardening um, country in the entire world, and yet we're the ones that are so lagging behind. I mean, France, Canada, Australia, Germany, America, all landscape contractors have to be licensed, uh, and, but we don't have any of this. So we've got all these hundreds and hundreds of unlicensed companies out there. Who really shouldn't be practicing now? If you think that's so not only unlicensed but uninsured, they don't have any. They don't have any compliances whatsoever. But because we, as an industry, are absolutely bogged down with compliances, everything from the construction design management regulations to to um, all of the consumers' acts and so on, we we work. We as like uh, association of professional landscapers members. We all work to uh, to work to, to compliance and to try and get the documentation part correct. And I just really like to try and get the message across to the government that the one way that we can make this right is to, in fact, say to the, the general public, look, if you don't employ somebody who is properly properly insured and, and properly um, uh, ratified, if you like, you won't have any insurance and you won't have any comeback in court. I think that might make people learn not to hand over £10,000 in cash to a stranger um, because if they couldn't actually, they didn't have that trigger point of having done their due diligence, then they would have any recall and recourse to go to court. So I think a bit of carrot and stick.
0: Sounds like a good idea. How do you think that would work practically?
1: It, I think it work very well practically because there'd be no need to have anybody um, um, going around sort of uh, um, ratifying somebody. There'd be no need for any um, um, uh, vetting procedure because quite simply, if, if Mr. Homeowner, Mrs. Homeowner uh, said they're going to get their garden done, the first question they say to the contractor is, I need, I need to see your insurances. If you're going to be using a digger on site, I need to know that you've got the proper certificates for it. Uh, and that just make them aware that if they don't ask these questions if they don't work to a contract if they don't work to CDM regulations then they won't have any insurance or any comeback via the courts and i think that that message would soon get out it wouldn't need to it wouldn't need to um, have an army going around and and, and checking people no no well that's good stuff well we've covered a lot of ground alan and uh, we're drawing
0: towards the end of the podcast now. But at the end of our whole week podcast, we always ask the same question of our guests, which is, what is your favourite plant? What plant would you take to a desert island if you could take no
1: other? I would take Pyrrhus in variety. I absolutely love Pyrrhus. They do so many things from looking fantastic in the autumn, fantastic in the spring with their flowers and, their, and, their, and you know, they're just the most amazing plants.
0: Excellent. What a good choice. Now, I've been talking to Alan Sargent, a veteran landscaper and author and Hawk Week columnist. Um, And this has been the Hawk Week podcast. So make sure you never miss a Hawk Week podcast. Subscribe to or follow Hawk Week podcasts via Apple Podcasts, Spotify or Google Podcasts or your preferred podcast platform. So once again, thanks to Alan Sargent. I'm Matthew Appleby, and um, goodbye till next time.